You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. For those of you who might not know who I am, my name is Royce, and I have the privilege of looking at God's Word with you today. Earlier this week, I was reading an excerpt from a book called Crosstalk, Where Life Meets Scripture, Where Life and Scripture Meet by a man named uh, Michael Emlett. And in it, he was talking about how important it was in our lives to uh, think through the categories of saints, sufferers, and sinners. Emlett talks about how throughout the course of our lives, we all wrestle in one way or another, in one time or another, with three basic problems. Firstly, we wrestle with the problem of identity and purpose. Identity and purpose. The underlying question of this is, who am I and what in the world should I be doing? We wrestle with that call and our identity and purpose. He says this corresponds to our our experience as saints. And then he goes on, the second problem is a problem of evil. It's a problem of evil from without, without. He says this is, this is suffering that comes because of things that are done to us, things that are done to us. We suffer because of things done to us. This is often involves other people hurting us, verbally, emotionally, physically, socially. There's a variety of ways they can be doing that. It also includes being hurt through uh, just living in a fallen world and living in broken bodies in finite time. For example, suffering illness, maybe such as cancer or a natural disaster or something like that. The underlying question we have here is, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? And uh, corresponding, this corresponds to the experience of us as sufferers, sufferers. And then the third area is the problem of evil, but the problem of evil from within, from within. We suffer because of the things done by us, not just to us, but done by us. Our sinful nature manifests itself and we harm ourselves, we harm other people. This is often manifested in our destructive behaviors or as well as our feelings of guilt and shame. The underlying question here is, how can I break free from the inner turmoil that I feel? How can I break free from that? This corresponds to our experience as sinners. All through the journey of our lives, we wrestle with each of these categories. One may dominate a certain season of our life, but all these realities uh, uh, that we will need to address at some point in our life, maybe at times, unfortunately, all three at the same time, Uh, but we are wrestling with these. These are very basic, broad categories. And I'd ask you, which which one do you, quickly in your mind, you say, yeah, this is the one that resonates with me. I want you to think about that today as we go through the Word. As we look at Ruth 4, our fourth week and final week in Ruth, we will see a theme that will address all three of these problems. All three of these problems are addressed in the fourth, fourth chapter of Ruth. In this chapter, the theme that I want us to look at is this, and this is my summary of the theme. It's this, God's redemptive work throughout the journey of our lives provides us with purpose as saints, hope as sufferers, and grace as sinners. 
Let me just repeat that. God's redemptive work throughout the journey of our lives provides us with purpose as saints, hope as, hope as sufferers, and grace as sinners. Will you stand with me as we read Ruth chapter 4? We're going to read through the entire text and then look at it closely. Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after it. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. 
Amenadab fathered Nashan, Nashan fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your word to us, a word written many centuries ago by people who experienced similar things to us even today, many hundreds and thousands of years later. And yet, Lord, you're, not only is your word to them, your theme to them true uh, to them, but may we learn from that and may we experience the redemptive work that we see in their lives. We thank you in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. The theme I want us to look at is God's redemptive work throughout the, our journey of our lives uh, provides us with three things. First of all, we see that it provides us with promise as saints. Promise as saints. In chapter 4, we see this in Boaz, the, his, his, life, the, his actions in Boaz. When we were first introduced to Boaz, it's, it's notable that in the book of Ruth, it was in chapter 2, we read that he shows up suddenly on the scene and he's just announced as a worthy man from the clan of Elimelech. He's a worthy man, a righteous man, a man of integrity. That's just how he's announced. And then we see when he shows up on the scene in the harvesters, he, he, he says to his reapers, he says to his employees in that sense, essence, he says, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. This told us a lot about him as a man. He, even in working the farm, he saw that God's presence was important and God's presence was there and he wanted his workers to acknowledge that and feel that what they were doing was important. At the same time, they, probably through his influence, were acknowledging that the blessings they received through him were really blessings from the Lord. He was clear with that. And then we saw that he was extremely generous with Ruth and Naomi, and not only blessing Ruth, but also then fulfilling his own blessing to her through his generosity to her. In chapter 3, we see that, uh, that he acts honorably towards Ruth, and that he's very receptive to her and Naomi's request for him to be a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer, just to remind you if you're not familiar with it, is a close relative uh, who makes sure that a land stays in a family, usually because of a death of an owner and there's no heir. That's a quick summary of what that is. Also, it could be a close relative who would marry a widow who had no children. There was, again, no heir, nobody to take the land on. They would, they would marry that widow, uh, have children, and those children then would take on the name, which is important, and the land. In response to Ruth's request, he, uh, to be his kinsman redeemer, uh, the book is, is fast moving. Uh, he, he acts very swiftly. The very next scene is, in fact, the very next day, Boaz goes, goes up to the gate and sits down. Now, the gate represents the a symbolic place of importance. It's the gate of a city. Back in those times when cities were often walled, especially the main part of it, the city, center city gate was the most important place to protect but also symbolically where the elders and leaders would meet to make decisions. It was the courthouse. It was the, it was the courtyard of the town. This is where all the important things happen. It's the most public place because every traffic has to go through there. So nothing was hidden from public, public happening, the discussions and decisions. And we read, as we've already saw, that Boaz sits down there and he waits. And lo and behold, the Redeemer, this other guy, the relative who is first in line to redeem uh, Naomi and Ruth, uh, comes by and he says, hey, come on in here, friend, and sit down. And he sits down. And then he immediately, Boaz says, hey, the 10 other elders, hey, you guys, come on over here and have a seat with us. He's obviously doing something formal. He wants his conversation with this Redeemer to be on record. He wants witnesses to what's happening because he intends 
to see if there's a deal here. And he's acting very, again, very honorable. He's being very straightforward. He's being very transparent. But he's, he's calling the shots and making sure the decisions are made. They sit down, and, the re, and he says to the Redeemer, you know, Naomi, your relative, by the way, came back, and, um, and she is selling a parcel of land. Now, Naomi did not have an immediate family member. She's a widow. Her sons have passed away. She has Ruth, who is a Moabite uh, daughter-in-law, but she's not, she's not part of the nation of Israel at this time. So she has no heirs. And therefore, this guy, this redeemer, the first guy, has the right of first refusal. So it's, he has the first chance to purchase the land and to take care of them. And, and so, he, he, so Boaz comes up and says, I thought I'd tell you. Let's just get right to the conversation. I, I want you to buy it in the presence of those sitting here, of the elders and the people. If you redeem it, you redeem it. It's yours. Deal's done. Okay, I'm out. Uh, but if you don't, tell me so I can know, because I'm next in line. And if you won't do it, I will. Again, he's completely above board. Now, the first redeemer, let's call him Mr. No Name, in which I'll tell you why in a minute, uh, uh, should have known that Naomi's return. It was the gossip of the town. It was big news at the town. Naomi and Ruth came back. Her, Ruth's reputation had already preceded her before she met Boaz. Boaz already knew about her. You would assume a closer relative would already know about him too. And, but, and he knew that he was the kinsman redeemer. He knew he was first in line, but he had never acted on it. He'd never done anything, to our knowledge, to help Naomi and Ruth. And now Mr. No Name uh, may have thought that if he didn't act on it and something happens to Naomi, he's the closest relative, he gets the land, free and clear. Maybe that's his plan. We're not told. That's a guess on my part, but it may very have happened. Now, Boaz, however, as a man of integrity, forces him to make a decision. You're not going to let this slide. You're going to make a decision, you're going to make it here, and you're going to make it now. And, and for, at, at first... This is a land transaction. You want that land? You can purchase it. You have real first rights. And the man, Mr. No Name, says, I'll buy it. Well, Boaz goes to the next level of commitment of a kinsman redeemer. He's not going to let it set there. Boaz then says to the guy, he says, when you buy the field, you also buy, acquire Ruth the Moabite, okay? And you, a widow of the dead. So he's now drawing into the things what the man should be thinking through as a kinsman redeemer. Um, and he says, uh, and, and, and he tells him why. He goes, uh, you require Ruth in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it because I would impair my inheritance. Take my right of redemption to yourself for I cannot redeem it. So what Boaz does is because of the laws of leveret marriages, the deal concerning this is if you get the land, you get the people who own, presently own the land, being at Ruth, you need to marry her, have children, and guess what? Those children inherit the land, not you. You perpetuate their name, not yours. You invest money in purchasing and getting the land going and making it successful until that heir can take over, which will be in quite a few years, right? She hasn't, have, she hasn't been born yet. He hasn't been born yet. Therefore, when that happens, you turn all those assets over to him, and it's in his name. That's why the Redeemer turned the offer down. He said no. Now, Mr. No Name now decides that he can't do it. It's too costly. So he opts out of the deal. He says, nope, I'm done. And we're told, as we, the story continues, now in former times they would take off their sandals. Now it's interesting in the Bible, this must have been written quite a few years later, 
because the author of Ruth has to explain to the readers of Ruth why these guys were taking off their sandals, right? He has to explain to them that to take off your sandals and they exchange sandals was a way to sign the contract, and they did it publicly uh, and all the nuances. Apparently that fell off the radar or fell off the legal way of doing things. They weren't doing it at the time. But he, he went through that. So they went through the legal way of doing it, and the guy says, buy it yourself, and they draw off their sandals, and Boaz says to everybody there, you are witnesses that I have bought the land of uh, 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 Van from the hand of Naomi that belonged to her husband Elimelech, who belonged to her son, who two sons, and with it come Ruth the Moabite, the widow of one of those sons. And I have her now as a wife. Why? Why did he? He makes sure again he answers why he's doing that to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, the Elimelech's inheritance. And the name of the dead may not be cut off, they would not cease to exist, it would not be unknown among the brothers, and so he did it. So Boaz, again, acts quickly to secure the deal. Notice that what Boaz is doing. He's not obtaining more wealth or even primarily doing this for the love of a girl. We'd love to have it in the American movie. That's what it would be. That's not why he's primarily, I'm not saying he doesn't love her, I'm saying it's primarily, that's not why he's doing it. Notice he names by name Elimelech and the two sons. And he says explicitly twice to perpetuate the name of the dead and their inheritance, not his own. This would cost Boaz a lot. A lot of his assets, a lot of his wealth would have to be put into this. And he would, um, and he would have to sacrifice quite a bit. And he would not get the land and the name and all the wealth after the fact. But he's doing it in ignorance. I think it's interesting here the irony regarding Mr. No Name, Right? Okay? He exercised his legal right for first refusal. He was not wrong in that. He, he, uh, he uh, exercised his, uh, his legal right for first refusal. But in so doing so, he removed himself from being an instrument of God's grace in other people's lives. He chose to do what was legal, but not what is gracious and right in the eyes of God. The first redeemer uh, would not fulfill his obligation to perpetuate the name of his commencement kinsman. Uh, and the author, what's, this is what's part of the irony, the author of the book of Hebrews does not give us his name, does he? Thus he's Mr. No Name. That's significant. It's significant. Um, he is forever anonymous. So when I was talking to Monica, we were sort of talking about this passage this week, and, and one of the first things she pointed out is that if he had acted with integrity to God's purposes, he would have been a direct descendant of Jesus. He would have been a direct descendant of Jesus, as Boaz ends up to be. But instead of being, he is now forever anonymous. And I, the irony is, so Elimelech's name isn't cut off? His name is. He's forever. We don't know who he is. We never will. But we do know about Boaz, who acted with integrity. This idea of a kinsman redeemer, someone who steps in and purchases and buys and redeems those in need who need help, and desperate help obviously points and anticipates in many ways Jesus. In Jesus, God became part of human humanity. He living perfectly in an evil world. Jesus did not die simply randomly just to make salvation available to whoever wants to accept it. He died for particular people who would respond in faith to the redemption that he provides from his death on the cross. Jesus absorbed the cost of our sin. Jesus provides an internal inheritance to us as the eternal kinsman redeemer. 
In Colossians 2, he says, Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Inheritance of the saints. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Peter, in his letter, 1 Peter, talks about that inheritance being imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. Remember when we opened with that we wrestle with the problem of identity and purpose? We wrestle with that. The understanding of the question of who am I and what in the world am I supposed to be doing? It corresponds with our, our, our experience as saints. Those who have responded to the gospel message have a new identity and are supposed to be walking in that purpose. In his address to the Ephesians, Paul addresses the letter to the saints that are in Ephesus. He doesn't say to the Christians. He doesn't say to the believers. He doesn't say to the followers. He says to the saints at Ephesus. If you are that, you are already a saint. And a little later he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not by works that so no one can boast. But for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the gospel message. We're saved by grace, but then we live out of that grace to do the things that God has called us to do. That's the purpose. I think Boaz was a man of a, as an example of these verses. Even though Paul wrote them hundreds of years later, the concept is what Boaz exemplified in the book of Ruth. He demonstrated that he was obediently doing the will of God as he understood it and sacrificed for the sake of God's purposes as he understood it. He wasn't perfect by no stretch of the imagination, but he did the best he could with what he had. He, he didn't do this to earn God's favor, nor can we but to express his understanding of God's blessing. Did he plan to marry back in the day when he was growing up and got his land and was doing really well? Did he plan to marry a Moabite widow, perpetuate some other man's line? Was this part of his agenda? Did the high school guidance counselor go through that option with him? Probably not. Probably not. In the journey of our lives, we, is, we, we do our best to live, uh, live in step with the truth of the gospel, dependence on the Holy Spirit. God will work in us and through us, and often he's going to take us places that we can't imagine. Boaz didn't expect to end up here just a year earlier, and yet here he was, and now in the lineage of Jesus. And we often don't know where the journey of our lives are going to take us, but we as Christians, we have confidence, though, when we, that we will end up where God wants us. I am my job... That I, my vocation, what I get, make a living at, if you want to say it, however you want it, my day job, I'm the director of Convergence. I'm the director of an alternative seminary for CB Northwest, Northwest Conservative Baptist Association, and what we do is we train pastors and elders in the local church. Recently, I was having a conversation with a guy, we had a cohort, a group of guys training, and we're sitting at the table eating dinner, and he was just very upset and very, really struggling hard because he had been a pastor for several years and now he found himself not in a pastoral role. Not because of moral failure, but circumstances that suddenly and very quickly he's a pastor without a church and he was floundering. He was being crushed by the options and by what was going on. He had lost his identity. He was a pastor. Now he's not. So who am I? I'm a nothing. And he, uh, he feared working in non-ministry employment. He had this, oh, I, I can't do that. I'm a pastor. I can't do that business stuff. And he, it wasn't, it wasn't, it, this wasn't what he planned. It, it, he feared that he was off track with what God's calling was on his life. So as we ate the, sat there and ate, I, I, I said to him, uh, I told him my journey. I said, why do you think I'm here at this table, right here, right now, talking to you? 
And I went back and said, you know, in my 20s, I felt a strong call to be a pastor of a local church. And I, at my 20s, charted the course of what that would look like. I would do three years in seminary, get my MDiv, and then go off into a pastorate for 50 years, and, and, do, and that's fine, okay? I didn't need a sophisticated plan, and that was it. So we moved to Massachusetts to go to seminary. Uh, but with a family of six, I had to work full-time and go to school part-time. That wasn't part of the original plan. But reality hit, and I had to do that. And I did not finish school there. We moved on to two years in Canada where I was the assistant pastor, pastor of a Dutch Reformed church. And I learned a lot of hard lessons in those years. Uh, in my youthful zeal, you might find this hard to believe, but I was a bit cocky. I was a bit cocky. And I, I had to learn the wisdom of controlling my tongue. I learned that sometimes just because I could say something, I probably shouldn't say it. And who I said it to was probably more important than what I said. And so that was some hard lessons. That lasted two years. And then we moved to Florida so I could continue seminary. And this, I was an associate pastor of an evangelical free church, poles apart in the church world. And learned a lot of lessons there, not only from seminary, but mostly from pastoring. And we were there for a little over six years. So it took me over 10 years to get my Master's of Divinity, my Master's degree. 10 years. I had planned three. I'm a little behind schedule. Okay? And then I candidated to some churches. That means I applied to be a pastor role in some of these churches. And I won't go through the whole story, but um, they didn't materialize for various reasons. And this was getting frustrated. And finally, and, and, and I felt finally my calling, I could be a pastor and knock things out of the park and go. And every time I brought up my philosophy of ministry, they said, oh, thank you very much. No, thank you. And you want to know what that philosophy ministry was? We're living here at Red Sea. The stuff I want, we do here, the mission and pathways and stuff like that, they're like, no, thank you. No, thank you. And I'm like, okay, I moved on. And I moved on and moved on and moved on. And then, and then we went in and we were home educating our children, four children at the time, and Monica and I decided that we needed to do this together. She was not going to do this by herself, that we we're going to do this together. So... So uh, I withdrew my name. I was in a church. I was in the short list of a church to be their pastor. I withdrew my name. I said, you know, I'm going to step back from this and focus on my family for a few years. I expected it to be two or three years. Then I'd be back in the pastorate, knock things out of the park. It was 12 years of not being in the pastorate. 12 years. In that 12 years, I went from employment as a technical writer to a technical editor to a project facilitator. Uh, due to economic hardships, companies, I kept getting laid off. Not kept getting, three or four times I was laid off. That's kept getting, right? Okay, three or four times. Um, and, um, and then I, one job I offered, the guy says, I called up a guy because I was about to be laid off from another job uh, because of the economics of the things at the time. And I called up a guy for reference. He, he started talking. He says, I have a job. I'm a consultant at a healthcare system. He goes, Rice, have you ever done enterprise-wide project management? I said, no. He says, have you ever worked in healthcare? I said, no. I, he says, have you ever done uh, work with government regulations? I said, no. He said, do you want the job? I said, sure. <laughs> what, what could happen? What could be, what's the worst that could happen? I get laid off? By the way, I was from that job anyways, eventually. But um, I went on, to, and then after that, I went on to be a process developer. I worked for an IT security company, of all things, I'm neither IT nor security, but I think process, and I helped them develop their process. My point being, this was a roller coaster time. Financially, it was feast and famine, and there were some long pieces, times of famine. 
And I worked with everybody from C-level executives, chief information officers, chief executive officers, in, in one year. The next year, I was in the assembly line of a battery factory just to make ends meet. It was up and down all around. No matter what the situation, however, was, I tried my best to commit to work hard, learn all I can about that vocation, whatever that vocation I found myself in at the time, and then to act with integrity. And after the kids left in quick succession, we decided to pursue a full-time ministry. So, okay, this is the time to go back. And so I was contacted by Sean, which is a whole other story. And I received an email out of the blue one day. We lived in New York at the time. Five reasons you need to move to Portland. That's Sean. I need to be honest with you guys. I had to look up where Portland was. I had no idea, okay? Um, and we came out to Portland. I was on staff here at Red Sea for two years. And I met Mark Hafner, the executive director of CB Northwest. And through our conversation, just a couple hour conversations, he, without me knowing it, interviewed me, as he always is very skillful at doing. He gets to know your story. He gets to know your strengths and weaknesses. And within a couple hours, he knows what you can do. And what he did is he found, that, he found out my background. He offered me a job to develop training for leaders and pastors, pastors and elders. I said, yeah, I can do that. I'm still an elder at Red Sea. In fact, that's a requirement for the job. But I got to go and do that. And when I took the job at CB Northwest, I didn't even know that I was a Baptist, but apparently I was because I took the job as a Baptist, okay? Now, let's go back to the conversation I was having with the guy. I'm telling him all these things. This is over the course of uh, quite a few chicken wings and a few beers, okay? So we're talking over this time, and I'm doing it, and I'm recounting this to him. And I asked him back to my original question, why am I at this table with you today? Why am I here with you as the director of Convergence today? It's not because I have an MDiv. It's not because I had an education. It's not because I was a pastor for a number of years. There are a dime a dozen. I don't mean to be derogatory, but there's a lot of guys like that. He says, you know why I'm here today? I'm here today at this table as a director because I home educated my children. I'm here today because I went and I worked in the business world and learned all sorts of different skill sets that God somehow has put together so I can be the director of training. And you and the rest of your cohort, the other nine guys in your cohort, are beneficiaries of that. You're not beneficiaries of my seminary education very much. What you're the beneficiaries of is that journey, that roller coaster life that God took me through for 12 and 15 years. That's why I'm in this, in this place, and that's why I'm going to help you over the next three years move forward. Did I plan this? No, I didn't plan this. No way. It's not a life journey. In the back of my 20s, I didn't, this wasn't on my right. Of course, I didn't even know where Portland was or what a Baptist was, much less being the director of one of their training centers. But this, my point here is, as I constantly pursued serving God, he molded me into the person he can use in the way he wants to use me, in the place he wants to use me, none of which I would have planned. You guys get that? And that's what I was saying to him. I have no idea what God has in store for you, but embrace it. Embrace it. Because I'm, if you, can, you, can, you can hold back, and God will, God will get your attention somehow, or you can embrace it. And in embracing it, you go places, and it turns exciting because you know God's doing something in you and through you. And it might take you a few years. It might even take you a few decades. We don't like talking about that. It might take you a few decades to get there. God's redemptive work throughout the journey in our lives provides us with purpose as saints. He did that in my life. The experiences, the hardships, the life learning, the skill development, 
all to, while I was trying to serve Jesus in churches, I ended up where I never planned to be. That's what Boaz was. That's true for all of us. The second part of this is God's redemptive work throughout the journey of our lives provides us with not only purpose as saints, but hope as sufferers. He buys the land. We're told he, he marries Ruth. They, uh, the Lord gives them conception. The, the Bible, Ruth 4, is clear that it just didn't happen. God was in this whole event. The Lord gave her conception. And then the women of Naomi said to Naomi, Blessed are you, and they celebrate her. You have now a restorer of life, and you have now a grandchild. And then, then Naomi took the child and laid her in her lap, and they gave her a nurse. It's interesting that they celebrate Naomi. They don't celebrate Ruth. They're not against Ruth. But they're celebrating Naomi, and I think that's for a reason. Remember how the, the book of Ruth begins? The book of Ruth begins with Naomi through her hardship. She, they had to leave because of a famine. They had to leave to go to Bethlehem. She loses her husband. She loses her sons. Everything has fallen apart. And then she, she comes back with Ruth. And when she shows back, the women of the town, the same women who are celebrating in chapter 4, remember in chapter 1 what they said? Who is this? Is this, is this Naomi? And she come back, and Naomi says, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And then in chapter 4, they're celebrating that she's now full. Her, her family line will continue. Her land will stay in the family. She's still a widow. Her sons are still dead. But the future for her, the hope of the future has changed. The hope of the future. And the Bible tells us that since the fall... Uh, and until the return of Christ. Suffering in numerous forms and in various ways will be a reality for all people, whether individuals or cultures. It's the constant theme through the Bible. C.J. prayed about that reality this morning. The incident that happened, the killings on the max. We still live in that fallen world. And, but, there, but we, as we read our Bibles and see that, we also see a corresponding theme of God's redemptive work. Whatever there's sin, there's God's redemptive work bringing it back. In the Old Testament, the word redeemer is used more often for God than it is for it is for people. And the word is used for kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth. Uh, in the rest of the Bible, it's primarily used for God as he redeems himself. He went to Egypt and he rescued or he redeemed the people out of Egypt. And he, when they went off to Babylon and, and were, were um, in the exile, he's the one who redeemed them and brought them back to Israel. Over and over again throughout the Bible, in the historical books and in the, the um, Psalms and the prophets, we read again and again and again that God is a redeemer of people, even when they turn their backs on him, even when they rebel against him, even if they don't acknowledge him, he is working in their life, calling them back, calling them back. And we see this, uh, especially in God's redemptive work in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus understands suffering. Jesus understands suffering. And then the things that Naomi said and she felt would not have been surprising to him because he felt similar things, not only just from people, but from God himself. She says, I am, I am bitter and, and I am empty. And that's what Christ felt on the cross when the Father withdrew from him, his presence from him. He was empty like we have never known emptiness. And through his experience, his hardships, his temptations, Christ's suffering is actually part of the gospel message we need to tell people about, right? We need to tell them not only that he lived, but that he suffered. In, in Matthew 16, 
Jesus says, he starts telling the disciples over and again, he needs to go to Jerusalem to suffer many things by the hands of the, of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes to be killed and raised on the third day. Jesus suffered by the hands of men. But we also read in our Bibles over and over again that Christ suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. What does that mean? It means Christ suffered at the hands of God the Father. He suffered both from people, but even God the Father inflicted pain on him that we'll never imagine. And yet he did it for the hope. He, author of Hebrews says, for the hope set before him, he endured the pain of the cross. We have hope in our suffering. And even when we do not understand our suffering, uh, and, and, we, and, we, um, and when our suffering itself does not subside, we still can have hope. And God redeems our suffering so that we can help others in their time of suffering. That's one of the lessons that's hard in the time of suffering to learn. But after the fact, sometimes those who have learned it make, understand it. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that... Why does, what, what is one reason, not the only reason, what is one reason God comforts us in our affliction, whatever that is? He tells us, so that we, the sufferers, may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves have been comforted by God. One of the redemptive works of suffering is not just that it's relieved, and sometimes it really is not. It's that those who suffer becomes conduits of grace to other people who are suffer and are in affliction. And God uses them in ways He could not use a person who has not suffered. During my journey over those years, as you can imagine, Monica also had a parallel journey. It wasn't identical by any stretch, but obviously they were very close being married and going through a lot of the same things. And, um, and during this time, uh, one of these years, a couple of these years when I was going through my ups and downs, she had a job, and was, but started over the period of time experiencing neck pain. And the neck pain continued to grow and grow and grow. And originally we thought it was just a pulled muscle because her job required her to lift things, heavy objects, at times. And it just kept getting worse. And then the pain sort of radiated down through both of her arms. And um, it just would not subside. It kept getting worse, kept getting worse. Uh, she eventually had to quit her job because she couldn't even show up at work. She couldn't do anything at her work. She couldn't use her arms. And, and the pain in both her arms. And it got so bad that she, uh, even after multiple doctor visits and multiple treatments and multiple medications and all these things going on, she ended up basically in just, not basically, she ended up in a neck brace and basically immobile, not moving. Uh, for, for stretches of days at a time, she would have to lie in bed and not move, just keep her head still, because any kind of movement of her arms and her head was causing excruciating pain. This lasted for 18 months. 18 months, and her suffering kept increasing. The physical pain kept increasing. But it wasn't just the physical pain. It was also that her immobility was extremely frustrating to her because Monica, as you know her, is a doer. She always has projects. She always has art. She always has something to do. She does not sit still well. She's always doing, and she always does it now. And then she couldn't do it at all. Anything around the house, with the kids, uh, anything she enjoyed, all those kind of stuff. Finally, a specialist diagnosed uh, that a vertebrae in her spine, it took us finally get to a specialist, that a vertebrae in her spine, the vertebrae was growing, shrinking and growing closed. The bone was growing closed and it pinched off her spine. 
so it's pinching off her spine, and then on the sides, because your vertebrae has side exits, those nerves was pinching off the nerves out her neck to her arms. If left treated, it would not have turned out well. So she went in for an operation. The operation was fine. Well, I don't know how they do that, going in and hollow out a spine, you know, without cutting the spine. But they did it, thankfully. Okay. Uh, the 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 recovery did not go so well. Her reaction to the anesthesia and some other complications made her sick for quite a while, even though her neck started to feel better, and she started feeling better. Now, this was in a physical and emotional time for Monica, uh, but. Just like with me, she grew through this experience. It wasn't pleasant at the time, but she grew through this experience. God's redemptive work throughout this journey of hers molded her. How do we see that? We were talking about it recently. She is now and has been since then much more empathetic to people who are suffering, especially those in chronic pain or illness. Before, she was sympathetic. She could understand in a way. Now she's empathetic. Been there. I understand the frustration, the pain. The, 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 um, sometimes even the hopelessness. And interesting, I think is even interesting, is her committed to praying and keep praying for people even when it appears that God doesn't answer. We prayed for those 18 months, just, hey, Lord, heal her. We believe that God heals people. He chose not to. And that, yet her commitment to pray for people continually has actually increased to that, not decreased. My point being that God's redemptive work in the journey of our lives provides us hope as sufferers. She's more hopeful now than she was. That incident was a tool that God redeemed in her life to make her more hopeful. God's redemptive work throughout the journey of our lives provides us with purpose as saints, hope as sufferers, and then also grace as sinners. We read this when they go, the ladies, uh, the men at the gate, they, they said, we are witnesses of this, and they say, may your house be like that of Rachel and Leah. Uh, may you... Uh, may you act worthy of them. May your house be like Perez, and they, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And, and they go on, and may you have many offspring. It sounds really nice at first, but they name names. They could have picked a lot of people in the line of Israel, but they picked some kind of um, questionable names to say, be like them. What do I mean? Well, the sisters, uh, uh, Rachel and Leah, uh, they, were, they were not best friends forever. They were sisters, and they were rivals. And their life together was not without its tension and hostility. And yet they say, be them and be fruitful. And then the most one is like that house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. Now, if you know the story, this is a scandalous story. This is, this is not a Sunday school page our kids draw very often, okay? Tamar is married to one of Judah's sons. Before they have children, he dies. Apart to the Leverite marriage, she marries the next son in line. And, and he refuses to have children through her. The Lord takes his life. Judas, seeing the writing on the wall, says, I'm not giving her my third son. And they go off. He sends her off. She Try to be tactful here. She pretends to be a prostitute. She has a child, twins actually, by Judah, her father-in-law. Okay? And this isn't the way it's supposed to go. This is a scandalous story in the book of Genesis. And yet we have that they say, may you be like Tamar with Perez. They, they name names. And, and in fact, the genealogy is these are the generations of Perez, her son. And it goes on and names Solomon, the father of Boaz. You know who Solomon's wife was? Rahab, another prostitute. So this lineage is forward, it's peppered. Jesus, the point being, the human lineage of Jesus is peppered with scandalous grace. This, is, this material is stuff for the tabloids. We wouldn't think it's part of the Bible, but it is. 
And God keeps using sinners all through his story. One of the passages of scriptures that, that Sean Garman and I, Sean was a former lead pastor here, the founding pastor here, used to talk about often, was a passage out of 1 Corinthians 6. And he says this, Paul says this, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the adulterers, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if we stopped there, we'd be, we'd be legalistic Baptists. But Paul doesn't stop there, and neither did Sean and I. The next verse says, and such were some of you. And hear that? And such were some of you. Those sinners, those evil people who lived evilly, you Corinthians were them too. I want to remind you of that. He goes, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and given the Spirit of God. That's amazing truth. People have messed up lives and God says, and so are some of you. And why are you different? Because my grace, the gospel broke into your life. I redeemed you and I'm now restoring you and putting you back to my original design. The grace of the gospel breaks the lineage of sin and dysfunction found in so many families in our culture. Not just our culture, many cultures, but it's just our culture. We know this firsthand at Red Sea, don't we? Some of you here sitting here today know firsthand the, uh, the dysfunction that families can have. The, some of you come from very horrible backgrounds. Dysfunctional families, many history of physical and emotional abuse, families that not only were godless, but were adversarial to God, maybe still are. And yet, by God's sovereign grace, God chose to save a particular person in that family, like he did Ruth. And the trajectory of the family now, because of God's grace, has radically, eternally changed. It's gone a different direction. And yet, just like the, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, and, and you read, the, you heard these words, and we're, so were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, and you hear those words, and it resonates with you because you can say, been there, done that. I understand the pain, but I also stand in redemption. It's almost like God in these totally messed up families sets the reset button. He picks somebody and he resets it. Start over. And now is an opportunity for that family to start over and to head a Godward direction. Through their growing in the knowledge of experience of the gospel, they, they're striving to overcome the consequences of that dysfunction. That dysfunction, the harm of your greater family, still can be part of that suffering that we wrestle with. And yet you know that, be, that you can move on from that. You know that you can point your marriages. You know we can point our children and our culture in a different direction and make headway there. We want to bring the rest of the family with us, but like Boaz and Ruth, we may not. God's redemptive work through all the journey of our lives and these people's lives in the Red Sea provided them with grace as sinners, and that resulted them as having hope as sufferers and purpose as saints, didn't it? The book of Ruth is a redemptive story about the intersection of th primarily three people's lives. Three very different people, and yet they had in common God's prov providential and redemptive work in them and through them. Boaz demonstrates the faithfulness of being a kinsman redeemer, living according to the God's requirements and his promises. Naomi was a woman who suffered greatly, but in the end she could celebrate God's redemptive faithfulness to her and especially her family. 
Ruth, a sinner, whose dramatic conversion from a pagan culture and a pagan God to God was also used redemptively, even to become in the lineage of not only King David himself, but Jesus Christ. The book ends with a mentioning of that. The book ends with Boaz, the son of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David. At the time this was written, that's probably who it ended. It was during the kingship of David. This was establishing that King David was in the lineage of Judah. But way back in the many years later, many years in the future, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's going to open up his genealogy. You guys remember Matthew chapter 1, verse 1? Do we need to replay that? We need, maybe we need to do that series over again. Okay? It opens with this line, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of David. Matthew begins by saying, this Jesus is in the son of David. In fact, he quotes, in the Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. He even quotes out of Ruth. And he's saying, Jesus is that kinsman redeemer. God's redemptive work throughout the journey of, of many, God's redemptive work throughout the journey of many generations culminates in the life, life and work of Jesus Christ. It's the same life and work that we celebrate here today. In Colossians, I want to remind you of this as we think about this, and I draw this to a uh, conclusion. Of Paul's words, he says, Give thanks to God the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. With that, that phrase and giving thanks, I want to invite you to take communion, to receive, I should say, communion. We, we, we receive communion every week to celebrate Christ's death on the cross, that we have forgiveness of sins, that we have been transferred into his kingdom, that we have redemption. As you go up today, if you're a follower of Christ, if you have responded to the gospel message that Christ died for your sins in repentance and faith, we invite you to come up with by yourself, with the family, with others. Come up to the table and, and take some bread and dip it into wine or juice and take it in celebration of his death. As you do so, I want you to think, I want you like you to think for a minute as you go up to give thanks for God's redemptive work in the journey of your life. And maybe think through it that, you know, hey Lord, I thank you because I have purpose as a saint. I have hope as a sufferer. Or I have grace as a sinner. Whatever feels best for you. I encourage you to think about that and give thanks to him for that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your de your, uh, the storyline of the Bible, the storyline of Ruth to, Ruth to remind us of what you've done for us. I thank you, Lord, for your love, your mercy. We thank you especially for your redemptive work in the journey of our lives, that we have purpose, we have hope, and we have grace in Jesus' name. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at